Underwriting provided by Physicians for Social Responsibility, working for over 50 years to create a healthy, just, and peaceful world for both present and future generations. More information can be found at psr.org. That's psr.org. Underwriting provided by the Sierra Club, the nation's largest grassroots environmental organization with over 2 million members and supporters, protecting millions of acres of wilderness and promoting policies that protect our environment. Learn more at sierraclub.org. That's sierraclub.org. Underwriting provided by Bold Iowa, protecting landowners against the abuse of eminent domain and working for clean energy solutions. Details can be found on Facebook at Bold Iowa. With me in the studio today, uh, Kevin Hardy, reporter with the Des Moines Register, who uh, wrote, along with uh, Grant Rogers, the uh, story that got a lot of attention about uh, concerns raised by people employed at the Windblade production plant in Newton. And this, um, with uh, wind becoming a huge national concern, uh, I mean, we have, we have, we have uh, turbines being built all over the, all over the country. Uh, this is a concern that, that is not just about one small town in central Iowa. And uh, it's a concern that um, has got a lot of attention because uh, we're talking about 300 workers who uh, were sickened uh, at the plant over the past, I think, uh, eight years or so. And we're talking about uh, a lawsuit by some of those workers and also concerns about whether or not the state has done its job to uh, effectively the state and federal government. OSHA in particular, have done their job in making sure that workers are protected and that corp- this corporation is following the law. Now, uh, having done some uh, some investigative journalism myself uh, in my spare time for fun, I know how much work this is, and so I appreciate the effort that's gone into this by Kevin and others at the uh, Des Moines Register. Kevin, welcome to the show. Hi, Ed. Thanks for having me. And so um, how did this come – how did this whole process, this whole investigation start? Um, well, this this got started um, by my former colleague, Grant Rogers, who was the courts reporter at the Des Moines Register uh, before he himself left the register to go um, study law at Drake uh, here in Des Moines. He um, basically got an old-fashioned tip from a source and about – Old-fashioned tip? What's that mean? <laughs> <laughs> Just basically someone whispered in his ear, this is something you should maybe look into. Uh-huh. There are some lawsuits. And when was that? How long ago was that? Um, this has been – Months ago, I don't know exactly when he got the lawsuit, but I th- the tip about the lawsuits. But I believe we we started working in earnest on the story in late spring or early summer of 2017. Okay, late so so about it, you know, not that long ago, really. No, yeah. several months ago, um, yeah. kind of working on our spare time here and there when, when we had time to yeah. to do this. When you weren't reporting on pipeline fighters, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, among other things. Yeah, among other things. Yeah. So. Uh, what kind of tip was that? Somebody uh, working at the plant or formerly at the plant? Um, I'm not sure if I'm really able to say okay. it was probably a, an anonymous tip, um, but it's just sort of the nature of the job. We we get calls right. and tips and emails, and, and people yeah. say, you should look into this, and so Grant did. And so what did you expect when you started responding <clears throat> to that call? Did you expect to find something this significant? Um, I think the I think when you start with a lawsuit, you never really know because uh, people file lawsuits all the time, so mm-hmm. it's hard to – 
it's sometimes hard to corroborate to tell how wide the universe is, if it's a widespread problem, if it's a one-off kind of situation. So um, we didn't really know what to expect. We do know, you know, there were six lawsuits filed by, uh, you know, Des Moines attorney Matthew Sahag, who's representing these former TPI workers. Mm -hmm. But the investigation kind of unveiled a little, a larger universe of impacted people aside from the lawsuits. Yeah. Uh, and again, 300 is the number that I've seen of people who have been sickened by. And again, what are we, we're talking about, it's not something they breathe. It's a resin that they use to treat the inside of the blade. Yeah, these are some these are dangerous chemicals that are used to manufacture the um, composite wind blades, and the the two in particular are or the one in particular that we've kind of focused on is this epoxy resin, which um, is used somehow to in the in the manufacturing and to seal the blade um, as they're making those massive blades in the plant in Newton. Yeah, and so it's not as if this was a mystery to TPI. Uh, or the industry. The industry knows that this particular resin is problematic, that it can lead to certain uh, skin conditions in, in, uh, in, in certain people, correct? Um, the, the federal government requires that um, the maker of dangerous chemicals um, sort of warn users of what the, the, the known dangers are. And um, through these uh, uh, material safety data sheets, which are published by the makers of chemicals. So they say how you should handle this, how you should store it, what protections might be needed for people who come in contact with it. And they also list the known dangers of chemicals. So anybody who buys a dangerous chemical for, for use in a plant, which is a fairly common thing in, right. in sure. manufacturing, um, should get a list and, and kind of know, uh, I guess, what the published risks are. And as far as whether TPI knew about um, these these issues, um, they started recording these issues before the plant even celebrated its grand opening. So they were recording issues in-house um, with skin breakouts, and the issue in particular is skin sensitization, right. so, which is warned on those. So they've known about this since before the plant opened, and one of the concerns being raised is that they weren't given, the workers weren't given adequate protection. Uh, they were given, and this kind of amazes me, paper, uh, paper protective gear. And, and the resin soaked through that paper uh, paper into their clothing and into their skin? What I'm told is they, the workers were wearing um, paper Tyvek suits, which are a common kind of PPE used in in American workplaces. The, the question is whether or not those are um, – whether or not those are adequate. And some of the safety experts in the story really raised alarm that those suits might not be the proper um, the proper material to protect against that resin. And so, I mean, get that they should have known that, is my impression from reading the story and from additional things I've heard from people. They should have known that. Um, I'm not going to get into whether they should have or could okay. have, but I, I will say that the safety experts show, um, e even on a, a supplier site like DuPont, you can really get into the weeds and figure out you know, suit X pr helps protect against chemical A, and you can really sort those out. So there are a lot of known resources out there that the safety experts say mm -hmm. really can help you pick out the right gear for the right chemical. Yeah. And it looks like they didn't do that. I mean, I know you don't have an opinion about this. You're just the objective reporter. But by everything I've read, uh, by all measurements, they, they knew this was a dangerous chemical and they didn't follow the procedures that were recommended, even by DuPont, the company that, DuPont, I believe, is the company that manufactures the, the resin? 
No, I'm sorry. DuPont is a they, – they manufacture some of these protective suits and ah, ears and okay. Um, okay. aprons and all those kinds of things, gloves. Okay. So that was just one kind of example of a supplier that, that really lays out on their but, website yeah, but they, how, to write, how to pick the right suit right, for the right. Okay. So, I mean, it, this, it, it seems – I mean, I don't know where this lawsuit is going to go. I understand why the uh, company would say, well, we can't comment right now because we're under a lawsuit. But, I mean, how do you, how do you not um, – <laughs> I, I don't see how they can. I don't see how TPI wins this one. It seems like there's strong evidence, uh, with so many people being sick, with so much known about the resin beforehand, with options for genuinely protective clothing. I don't see how they win this one. Um, I don't know. And you don't have. A, I know you don't have an opinion about that. Well, <laughs> I don't. But I, I will say, as far as the lawsuits go, I think the central question there, from a legal standpoint, is going to be. You know, what responsibility does TPI have, does an employer have, once someone contracts this known illness? TPI's argument is that we can't safely accommodate them in the plant because we have this resin all over the plant, Mm. and now they've developed this reaction. So if they come in contact with it, they will break out, they will get sick. Um, So I think that's sort of the heart of the legal question is, uh, you know, although they developed the condition at TPI, is it TPI's responsibility to keep them on even even after they, yeah. Well, that, can't that, and that, that's the thing we haven't talked about is that when when people came down sick, they were fired. Yeah, in many in in some cases that w- that's what happened. Um, there are other cases in the story you'll see that um, people who that wasn't their response they moved them to a warehouse or another facility right. away from the resin. But there are these these claims and the lawsuits in particular say the people say they were terminated, fired, fired, and even denied workers' compensation claims. Uh, chal- yeah, the in company some challenged some workers' comp and some unemployment yeah. cases. Well, it's uh, uh, do we have a caller, Maddie? Yes. Okay, so um, folks listening on the uh, Facebook live stream, we're going to have to uh, cut that off because we, we don't have the technology yet to include the phone call in the live stream. But you can hopefully, hopefully all other technologies are working well today, and you can listen to this in the Des Moines Metro on 96.5 FM or 1260 AM or on my website at fallonforum.com backslash listen. So please uh, st- you know, stay with us. I'm, uh, we'll, uh, we'll go to our phone lines here. And if uh, worst-case scenario, this entire program will be available as a podcast later today. Okay, so let's go to our phone uh, and welcome. Who do we got here? Um, my name is Jana Swanson. I'm with the Coalition for Rural oh, Property Rights. Hi, Jana. Hi. Yeah, so uh, have, you been, have you been able to listen to the conversation here? Yes, I have been listening to the conversation, and I've been following that um, the lawsuits with TPI, and um, and have quite a bit of concerns of my own about the wind industry in Iowa, and um, their 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 claims um, about how safe the wind turbines are, and um, and the information that has been known to people. Um, about the adverse effects and impacts of wind turbines on surrounding residents. So it doesn't surprise me that um, this is happening um, in different areas of the wind industry as well. So, uh, and again, I don't know whether um, whether Kevin's been tracking any of uh, any of those conflicts, but uh, more and more of that is coming to my attention about the uh, concerns raised by landowners and farmers and others who are in areas where there are a high concentration of wind turbines, what I think some refer to as industrial wind installations. Um, and I don't know, uh, again, I don't know if that relates to the uh, concerns at TPI. I think that's probably a separate a separate issue, but it does raise the bigger question of, um, I think, uh, you know, I mean, and I'm, I'm, I'm 
enormously concerned about climate change. That is, of all issues, of all problems, that's the one that motivates me more than anything. And and wind has been embraced as a key element to addressing the uh, climate problem. But now as we have these, you know, these issues um, coming up uh, in the field, in your case, and in the factory, in the case of the story that uh, Kevin reported about, you know, it it leads uh, it leads to concerns that you know weren't on the radar about ten years ago when wind really started taking off. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't know how much the TPI case in in specific relates to the wider debate about um, is wind energy a, a good path or a bad path for Iowa to take. But I'm familiar with Jana's concerns, and I do think that there is a, a much wider discussion happening in Iowa about. Um, some of the, I guess, side effects, if you will, of living near these um, wind farms, being a landowner near that that is leasing space to these wind farms. I know um, we've done some reporting at the register on uh, the concern of landowners and neighbors that um, although there is this huge bipartisan support for wind, it's on the ground. It, it's a little bit um, more controversial, I would say, with, with people in those that, that live near them and have to put up with the lights and the sounds and, and anything else that's associated with yeah, it. Yeah, Jenna, what would you what would you say are the top uh, concerns about that landowners have about the presence of uh, a large concentration of turbines in your area? Um, there are so many concerns that it's really hard to list them all. Um, but there's a there's a an, a huge huge. Um, amount of information that is available online. Um, there's many, many different sites that uh, that have been um, documenting the problems with industrial wind for over a decade. Um, there's uh, um, shadow flicker and noise and turbulence and infrasound can and describe, problems with uh, can farming. You, hold on a second. There. Describe shadow flicker. That's not a, a term in most people's uh, dictionary these days. What, what is shadow flicker? Um, shadow flicker seems very, uh, fairly innocuous, but it is when the sun is behind wind turbines and it is casting a rhythmic shadow into your home. So you're in your home and it looks like somebody is, shine- is turning the lights on and off, on and off, on and off. And, and pulling the blinds don't help and curtains don't help because of the large, uh, the large nature of the wind turbines. And so are there, are there documented um, medical concerns relating to this phenomenon? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, and, in fact, it's, it's being studied extensively in many different areas. And there isn't anything absolutely conclusive as far as health goes, but, the, um, but so many people are coming forward and telling of their problems that it can't be ignored. Right, but is the uh, is the wind energy industry ignoring it? Are they saying it's not a problem? Um, yes, they are. They um, in in fact, I'm just looking through some of the trade wind literature right now, and it absolutely says nothing in there about the negative impacts. Now, if I were to look at one of their contracts, a lot of times the negative impacts are listed right in the contracts, um, especially the ones that they offer to non-participating landowners who are the neighbors. To these wind turbines, um, they will come and offer money to for landowners to put up with these negative impacts. So they're well aware of mm. the impacts, but they're not forthcoming about them. Yeah, and I don't, I don't. How do you how do you protect against shadow flicker? Even one wind turbine could be causing that problem. 
uh, I suppose it's maybe an issue of where it's cited. If it is, if it is going to be an issue, uh, you put it somewhere where it's not near somebody's home. But if you've got dozens and dozens and dozens of these turbines, you know, I, I don't know how you avoid that. Um, well, you generally don't. What happens is that the wind companies come into a community. They find a lot of absentee landowners, the people that don't live in the area, um, and then they go to the county supervisors and that they promise all sorts of money in tax revenue um, for the county. And the, the supervisors then um, <coughs> don't listen to the people, don't listen to the residents that live in the area. They listen to that. And they, they say that, um, that they can cast 30 hours of shadow flicker onto homes, right. that, they can, um, that they can produce noise and um, bother people in their homes, and that's okay as long as right. the county is getting paid. Well, Kevin, let me ask you there. When, when, when wind first became a growing interest in Iowa, uh, there, it was a very partisan issue at first. I remember the only Republican in the Iowa House who supported uh, doing anything to expand wind was the one guy from northwest Iowa who had a bunch of turbines in his district. And people, these, these are much, I, I saw, I, these turbines are much smaller back then, too. And um, my, it seems like much, much more innocuous. But uh, then when Mid-American was allowed to come in, that's when every, everybody jumped on board. And I, I remember the, the vote in the House to allow uh, Mid-American basically to vertically integrate in wind to both um, produce and sell. Uh, it was unanimous. Uh, I was the only person who almost voted no because I was concerned about concentration. I was concerned about, um, you know, basically killing the opportunity for distributed generation where you've got a lot of small entrepreneurs uh, and even individual farmers who might, you know, put up a, a you know, one turbine on their property uh, or a handful and and now we have an industry where the the concentration is almost exclusively in the in in, in the investor owned utilities and i don't, i don't i'm assuming that a tpi most of those blades are going to mid american or another large utility like that um i i don't know exactly where they end up i know that that they are they cited you know building in iowa as being close to the the ultimate destination for um, these these blades, but TPI's Newton plant, their sole customer is GE Renewables, uh, and I don't know exactly where those end up, but I, I would assume that those are primarily around the Midwest area because the plant is here and they want to be close to the ultimate destination. But I I, I can't tell you, Farmer Joe has you know a TPI. I'm not sure exactly yeah. where they ultimately go. But it's uh, you know it's it is in the big scheme of things, this is still a fairly new initiative, and uh, you know and problems are going to arise and and now we see some problems that almost seem intractable. I don't I don't know how you address some of the concerns that Janet is raising or the concerns um raised in in your story about the workers. I some of that stuff I don't know how you address that. Is there is there an is there a way to protect people from uh the toxicity of the resin? Is there a different type of product you can use to make sure that the uh, blades are protected? Is there a way to design these blades so they're not going to cause problems for people out in the uh, country? Well, I know that um, you know safety experts really have three kind of uh, three prescriptions for uh, mitigating a safety problem that's known in a plant, and the first one is to change the 
the chemical that, that's being used. So you, you can look for an alternative. I don't know. I'm not an engineer or I, I don't know the specifics of how that's built, if that's an option. The other one is to really change the processes itself and, and change the way the work is done in the plant. And here at TPI, we know that these workers are on their hands and knees crawling inside these massive turbines and or these blades, I'm sorry. And that's where they're getting this exposure on their their arms, their legs, their groins, their backs. So is there a way that can be done? I, I don't know. And the the last um, kind of way to mitigate is to really uh, – is looking at PPE or personal protective equipment, which is really Personal a major, protective equipment. Which is the gloves, the – the gear, the mask, the the goggles, the suits, all of that. So those are kind of the three things that safety experts really mm-hmm. point to 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 get around these problems because these chemicals are used in a multitude of other um, applications and people that are familiar with fiberglass production in, in lots of industries use these chemicals as well. Yeah. Well, well uh, Jana, any final words for us on, <clears throat> on the subject before we move on to a short break? Um, I would just... Um I would just uh, urge people to think about, um, rethink the wind industry. Um, One of the things that um, I like to tell people is that that everybody wants wind energy because it it, it reduces our carbon emissions. And I went online and looked up on the... um, uh, the American Wind Energy Association to see how much that they claim that... that, um, wind turbines void in CO2, and it was 159 million metric tons of CO2. And that sounds very impressive until you realize that mankind um, is attributed to 35 and 40 billion metric tons of CO2 each year. So with the number of wind turbines that we've put up and the amount of, a huge amount of money that's gone into them, and the land and the communities that are beginning to fight off, and the states that are beginning to fight off industrial wind, we are never going to get much more than one percent of that avoidance uh, in from CO2 from industrial wind. And um, it's just not worth it to these communities. It's not worth it to the farmers. We're hurting our base economy in farming, and um, it's just that uh, industrial wind is not worth it. Okay. Well, I will say that I, I tried to get – I called TPI, uh, no response. I've uh, tried to get uh, – I called several different um, folks involved with wind energy. I had somebody who was actually scheduled to be on the show that, uh, that I had to cancel. Uh, I, did t- I did speak to somebody just this morning with the American Wind, wind Energy Association, and he was uh, at least interested in uh, further discussing this at some point. So um, I also have been trying to find more people from the plant who would be willing to talk, and uh, a lot of folks are concerned about their jobs. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's a big problem when it comes to exposing, uh, <laughs> exposing problems like this is people's employment is sometimes on the line. So anyway, I, I'm... Yeah, we, we should talk further sometime about the uh, concerns that you uh, and others are dealing with. I know we just kind of touched a little bit more detail on, on uh, shadow flicker, but I know there are concerns about light and noise and uh, impacts on agriculture because of the height of the towers. So, um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll have a chance to get into that at some point. Thanks uh, for calling, Jana. We're going to take a short break here, folks. When we come back, uh, we'll continue our conversation. I think we've got somebody on the line who uh, used to work at TPI and is going is to uh, share his perspective uh, on that. We'll be back in a few minutes, folks, on the Fallon Forum. Underwriting provided by Physicians for Social Responsibility, working for over 50 years to create a healthy, just, 
and peaceful world for both present and future generations. More information can be found at psr.org. That's psr.org. Underwriting provided by the Sierra Club, the nation's largest grassroots environmental organization with over 2 million members and supporters, protecting millions of acres of wilderness and promoting policies that protect our environment. Learn more at sierraclub.org. That's sierraclub.org. Underwriting provided by Bold Iowa, protecting landowners against the abuse of eminent domain and working for clean energy solutions. Details can be found on Facebook at Bold Iowa. All right, so welcome back to the uh, Fallon Forum here. Kevin Hardy, Des Moines Register reporter, in the studio with me as we discuss the uh, investigative uh, journalism that went on uh, in producing the story about the uh, Windblade factory in in uh, Newton that um, has seen 300 people come down with a uh, you know skin problems relevant to the use of a resin in those wind blades. And I've been trying to encourage people who worked there or who still worked there who had a, or had a family member there um, to call in. And it's been, it's been hard. I mean, a lot of people are concerned about uh, what might happen, what kind of pushback they might get, uh, losing their job, um, maybe uh, damaging the biggest employer in Newton. Who knows? I mean, there's lots of concerns. But I'm, I'm glad to have uh, – see, I think we have Jeremy on, on line one here, Maddie. Hello, Jeremy. Welcome to the show. Are you there? Jeremy, are you there? Did we lose him? Must have lost him. Okay, well, uh, Jeremy, call back if you can. We seem to have lost you there for some reason. Uh, so uh, was that a challenge for you, uh, uh, Kevin, finding people willing to talk about this? I mean, you said the lawsuit. I mean, I guess when you're in a lawsuit, then, it's, then it's, uh, you have nothing to hide. Well, yeah, I think once a thing, once something goes to a lawsuit, that's already a public process, and those people were were willing to to speak with us, or most of them were. And um, beyond that, we sought really hard to find other examples, to find current employees, former employees, who um, could just tell us, I guess, how how real this problem is, how widespread it is. And it's always difficult, but sometimes we can use, you know, we can talk to people on background or off the record, and. To, to at least inform ourselves and, and inform our reporting. But, um, you know, we did find some other people who were willing to talk. But, yeah, there, for every person that's, you know, on the record, there might have been five other dead ends. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, again, there are – I mean, TPI is the small town of Newton's largest employer. Uh, but my impression is with the growth in wind energy across the country, there are a lot of other factories around the country that are – producing the same product and probably using the same resin and perhaps even having the same problems? Um, I, you know, I, it's really something I don't know what other companies are doing. I don't know. Um, we did have one example in our story of another um, company, Siemens, that is producing wind blades in southeast Iowa. And they had some notation of problems with um, dermatitis, as it's called, or skin sensitization. But it was really only a handful of cases uh, but it's hard to tell exactly yeah. what their process is like, exactly you know what their PPE is like. And that's their personal protective equipment. Yes, yeah, sorry, exactly yeah. what their employees are wearing or what chemicals they may be using. Right. Uh, I guess we have a Jeremy on the on the line. 
Jeremy, welcome to the show. Yes. Hey, how you doing? Thank you. Thank you. I well yourself. Good. Yeah, good. So we got Kevin Hardy in the uh, studio with us here, and uh, you used to work at TPI. That's correct. In 2009, I was employed by TPI. Uh, started in May and, and ended up leaving that next January. So a little bit less than a year. That's correct. Did you have any uh, trouble with the, uh, the the resin or anything else like that? Yeah, that's why I'm calling in. So um, when I first started with TPI, I was not part of the teams that messed with any of the resin, used any of the resins. They have two different forms of resin. They have a paste and a liquid resin. <clears throat> so in August, when I was hired on full-time, because they start you off as a temp employee, they had put me on a team working with the liquid resin. I was with that team until November of 2009. In November of 2009, I was put on that closing team, which is where you go inside the, the blade and you actually use a paste. And that paste is the chemical that will cause the contact dermatitis usually. And I found that that's when I started having the issues. Uh, it was when I was in the blade actually mixing by hand the paste. So mixing by hand meaning with your hand or... No, with yeah, a... so you have PPE, and you have a scrape tool that you go in and they'll lay down the paste inside the blade, and your job is to go in and make sure that the, the paste covers certain areas. So a lot of times you'll be doing that by hand. You'll actually be applying it by hand. That's correct, yes. Just trying to get the, the paste to go into where it needs to. With your bare hand. Crevices. Well, you have PPE on, so you do have gloves that are on. Okay. Um, and then you do have... The, the Tyvek suit that is that very thin Tyvek suit that the paste does get through and uh, where you start to see issues with people getting the contact dermatitis right. once it gets on your skin. Yeah, and it sounds like for, in some pe- for some people uh, this is a it – doesn't, it doesn't seem to go away. It seems once they, once they uh, contract this problem, it's, it's with them. Is that your experience, Kevin? Yeah, um, the way that um, you know medical experts describe sensitization is essentially like an allergy, where you know you may be allergic to peanuts, but the person next to you is not, <clears throat> and it, it sort of develops after contact with the offending chemical. So you walk into a plant like that, and you have no idea that you might have the sensitization. And in fact, you may not have it when you walk in. It might take weeks, months, or even years in some cases before you break out. But once you do break out, the only way to really safeguard against future breakouts is to not come in contact with those chemicals. So uh, have you had problems since leaving the uh, leaving the uh, factory, uh, Jeremy? Not so much. I, I don't have any of the symptoms that I had when I was around the paste. Um, and, and Kevin's correct. So the first time I had a breakout, um, they put me in another department within the warehouse. And then when they would move me back onto the same closing team, each time I would break out again, and um, and it would end up being worse each time. Wow. So you know, I uh, <laughs> and did you uh, did you notice whether your coworkers were uh, similarly affected, or was it just a was it just a handful of people? <clears throat> yeah. So they would they they had an area that you would work in whenever you would get contact dermatitis that they put you in and you're only allowed to be there for a couple of weeks and uh, you had to go back to your team or you'd have to typically what I saw was find other employment and you would always have somebody in that back part of the warehouse working because of the, the symptoms. Yeah, and would, so there was always somebody working at it. But there were some people who, did some people who did that job not contract the problem? 
That is correct. Yeah, okay. some people just did not uh, get to contact dermatitis. Um, for some reason, they had resistance. Or it also may be that um, they didn't get the chemical on their skin. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I had found for my personal um, story was it had came in contact with my skin. Once it came in contact with the skin, I started to see the symptoms. It sounds like it's hard to avoid having it come in contact with your skin. That's correct. You're inside of a turbine, and it's it's very narrow inside there, and the crevices that you're trying to get into to lay the pace down, uh, in essence, you're putting two pieces of a turbine together. So you don't have a whole lot of room, so you will bump your back. Even if you have the Tyvek suit, you will bump your back, your sides, your arms into the chemical, and it typically does get through the PPE. Okay. Yeah, and I would just say, I mean, one of the... I guess red flags that one of our safety experts raised was the places on the body where these breakouts were happening. It wasn't just something that was on your hands or on your arms. It was really all over the body. Um, TPI was recording, you know, literally head to toe breakouts from some people. So the the resin was really getting in through the groin to the groin area, to the hips, to the back, to the knees, to the, the calves, the chest, you know, all over the body really, which. Um, as some of the workers, you know, say, like Jeremy, it's it's from crawling around in those blades that you're really coming into close contact with that resin. Now, I'm just trying to get a visual on on what it's like to crawl into one of those blades. I, I see them out in the fields, and it's hard to it's hard to get a sense of just how big they are until you see them like moving on trucks or on trains. But still, I imagine to crawl all the way into the tip of that must be a fairly claustrophobic experience. That's correct. You typically have your your smallest person on the team try to uh, wiggle their way down to the very end, as close as they can get, uh, to to lay the pace down. So you draw the draw the short draw the short straw by being short. <laughs> that, that's that's correct. Yeah. Huh. Now, um, did you were you fired from the plant? I mean, because some of these workers, once they reported sick, they were fired, and even in some cases denied workers' compensation. Is that your situation? That is not. So I took a different approach. In in November, in late November, I had got my first um, episode of the contact dermatitis. At that time, I did not know what it was. When I brought it to my team's attention, um, they had said that we're going to move you to the different area. So what I was, they moved me to an area where I help provide uh, PPE. Now, like I said before, that's personal protective equipment, right? Personal protective equipment, that's right. correct. So yep. you typically were not in that area for more than a week or two, two at the max, usually, uh, before they moved you back to your team or you had to find what seemed like uh, other employment. Yeah. So my first, I was there for one week. The skin did start to get a little bit better. In December, I had another outbreak. This time, they sent me to uh, Skiff Medical Center. When I was there, they diagnosed it as um, contact dermatitis. Hmm. Same story, went back to... Uh, working at the warehouse in the back for another week. Did start to heal a little bit. They give you ointments that you put on uh, every evening, and you wrap your hands with gloves. And uh, very painful, the contact dermatitis, because when you move your knuckles, this was mainly on my hands. I had it on my knees, but mainly on my hands. Once you would move your hands, your knuckles would crack and break, and you'd bleed, and it was very, very uh, painful. Mm. So the second time I went, I got they removed me from the warehouse, put me back on the closing team again, I got contact dermatitis within within a few days of being there. I think it was like within two days of being back on the team. Went back to the hospital, got you know exact same diagnosis. 
Um, it was early January. Kind of went through the same story. Went back to the warehouse for the maximum two weeks. They put me back on the closing team. And during this time, I requested not to be put back on the closing team multiple times. Got the contact dermatitis again pretty bad. Went back to the hospital and... So, so wait, wait, you, wait you, you, you requested not to be put back on that team and they put you back there anyhow? Multiple times, that's correct. Okay, right. That's, that's where I was needed. Um, so the last time was in January of 2010. I had gone in again to Skiff Medical Center and they had, they had even stated that at this point in time I am highly contagious to the paste and it is... Uh, now becoming more serious because it will become a blood issue. It'll get the the chemical can get in your bloodstream. It'll be a you know an actual health issue for long term if I go back to the position. So when I left there and it was brought to my attention that I would not be leaving the closing team, that's when I decided that I would no longer be employed by TPI. So you left on your own. That's yeah. correct. Now it sounds like you're fortunate not to have any residual uh, problems, but the woman featured in, uh, in in Kevin Grant's story in the Register, uh, Patience Green, uh, it sounds like her situation is ongoing and perhaps even a problem she's going to deal with the rest of her life. I mean, she she can't um, she can't put on winter coats and layered clothing that bothers her. She takes showers a couple times a day. Um, you know, even with lots of, uh, you know, putting on lots of, uh, you know, body lotion, that doesn't seem to have a, have a, you know, solve the problem either. See, I mean, my impression, Kevin, is she might be stuck with this problem for the rest of her life. Yeah, I don't know, you know, what the long-term prognosis is, but it's definitely the case that she says she's still having these effects, and that it's really affecting her even ability to earn a living. One of the jobs that she got after um, leaving TPI was in a bakery in Des Moines. And she had to leave that job because it was just too hot and too warm in there from the ovens, and it exacerbated her condition so much. So it it affects her day-to-day life. She can't, um, you know, cook at home as much as she used to. She she has to go outside in the middle of the winter for relief because the the warmer air really bothers, you know, this condition, and the cooler air feels good. And like you said, she can't wear a coat. She can't wear... Um, layered clothing, and she just um, has to resist itching. You know, a lot of the time, she said. Mm, that's very sad, um, and it just it just it bothers me that the company doesn't seem to think it has any liability in that in that situation. That's my impression, at least. Yeah, I I, I will say um, just for fairness' sake, TPI has um, rejected most of these claims and these lawsuits. Although they do concede that um, employees like patients were let go because they could not safely accommodate her. And they said, you know, once they had this condition, essentially there's no way for her to safely work in that plant. Um, but like a, you know, they, like you might expect, they said that safety is, an, is the most important thing. The safety of their workers is important. And they wouldn't comment specifically on these lawsuits or the, you know, their safety practices, but they said safety is a top concern at that plant. And in those lawsuits, they do reject many of the claims. Now, Jeremy, are you in touch with uh, folks that you used to work with at the plant? Yes, I still know a few of them. And in the residual, I do know one lady that um, had some of the same issues that I had. And she was she left TPI before I did. So that would have been in 2009 that she left. And still this day, she has skin sensitivity on her face. And she has every year she ends up with rashes on her hands. So seven or eight years years after she was working with that that uh, that resin, she still has problems. Correct. Is she involved with any any of the lawsuits? Do you know? Uh, 
I know that she is not. Yeah. She has She was not informed about them. Maybe I she should she be. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's this is um. You know, I I'm a huge supporter. I, I'm, climate change to me is the is the major crisis of our time, and we need the, the, there's so many things we need to do to address that. But the the central piece is getting. You know, getting off of fossil fuels. And so I've always been excited to see us uh, get to close to 40 percent of our energy in Iowa coming from wind. And so it's, it's a real it's a real gut punch to come into contact with all these problems, uh, problems in the production of the blades, problems, as Janice shared, with uh, what happens when they're placed out in the, in the in the country, the people who live there. You know, those uh, these are concerns. I, I you know, I my response, my immediate response is, well, you know, maybe we need to be, uh, you know, putting the kibosh on further wind production until we have better answers on some of these problems. And maybe we need to be doing more with solar, which does not seem to be generating the same kinds of, of either health risks in the production of those panels or in the placement of them uh, out in the field. Um, and also, I guess solar seems to be more inclined to be to, to work for. Uh, distributed generation. Uh, you can have it on your home uh, you, or business. You can have a small. You can even have a you know a, a sizable array, I suppose. But with wind, it seems like wind is as as at least gets right now. It's at the point where it's largely controlled by a handful of big companies. And so I, I'm uh, I, I'm waxing editorial here a bit, uh, Kevin. So I I don't know whether either you or Jeremy have any thoughts on that. But I thought I'd throw that out there and just get your feedback. You know, I, I know what you're saying, Ed, and I, I think it's a valid discussion, but I also think, um, from my perspective, it's just really important to to not lose perspective at really the heart of this issue of people saying that essentially they were hurt at work and they were fired for those injuries. And for, for me as a reporter, I don't really care if that happened at um, a coal plant or a renewable energy plant. <laughs> right, you know, right. There's a basic question of is that right? Is that right. just? Yes. Um, so that, from my perspective, I, I you know, don't want to lose sight of that, that it really doesn't matter what workplace you're in. Your employer has a responsibility to provide a safe workplace. That's the state law. That's the federal law. And and that's really the heart of this for me. Yeah, and, and one, and I'm glad you mentioned it, state and federal law, but part of the problem here is uh, the federal and state watchdogs seem to have fallen down in their job. Um, that is that has certainly been alleged by some uh, advocates, and like the story shows, OSHA has not acted on this issue. Um, they are now kind of going back and investigating how they've handled this, but OSHA, Iowa OSHA says they have never received a specific complaint to these issues, though they have these logs, you know, in their custody of hmm. the recordable, the recorded injuries, they say they've never received a complaint from a worker or a current worker on these issues. Jeremy, any final 30 or 45 second comment from you before we have to break the show? I, I just appreciate that you brought the light to the issues that they have. Uh, hopefully this is something TPI takes seriously and, and also hopefully, uh, our watchdogs also see this and take it carefully, or uh, take it uh, with responsibility. Now, even though if there weren't complaints filed, they should look at the uh, the injury reports and, and maybe be a little proactive. Mm, right. Good point. Well, Jeremy, thanks for uh, calling in. Again, thanks to uh, Janice Swanson uh, for joining us as well early in the show, and especially thanks to Kevin Hardy for enduring an entire hour next to me here in the studio. Thank you, Kevin, for joining us. Yep, thanks for having me, Ed. And uh, one, one more quick question. Will there be additional stories based on this, uh, this um, there, report? There will, and probably even today yet, uh, this afternoon, you'll see something else published, if not tomorrow. Okay, great. Okay, so switching gears, uh, boy, I have so many places with this conversation, but i got to start just by noting that um, – well, I, I don't have a tattoo. I, I never have 
gotten one. I never will. But I I found it interesting that uh, there are, well, there were in the year 2016, 14,124 tattoos that got removed. Well, that's um, something <laughs> I'll never have to worry about. For what that's worth, that's a lot. I, I'm surprised. That, uh, I guess I'm not surprised, really. Now, but it, it can't. It, it can't be a very fun experience. Ouch. So, um, before we talk a little bit about the uh, the um, the a trillion dollar, the one trillion dollar deficit that we're likely to have here in the near future in our country, which is just incredible. Um, in in terms of other things that Donald Trump does or or ha- has done or continues to do. That um, they get under my skin. One would be pardoning Shalom Rubashkin. And I don't know how many folks know him, but he's become uh, fairly well known around the country, largely because he uh, operated a slaughterhouse in Iowa that was kosher. Uh, he's uh, among, you know, he's with the. Uh, the uh, with the branch of Judaism that's that's very very conservative as his Jews, and they came to this town in northeast Iowa years ago, and and uh, they, they they took over an old uh, meat packing plant. I can't remember whether it was Hormel or IBP. They took it over and turned it into uh, a kosher slaughterhouse. And uh, you know, at the time, everybody everybody was saying, "Well, that's great. It's always nice to see an old factory that's no longer used be converted into something else." that employs people locally and produces something of value. Again, most of it being shipped to, I think in this case, the bigger cities where the the Hasidic population uh, is more abundant than in the small town of Postville, Iowa. But the, um, what happened, there was, there was a really interesting book written by a guy named Steve Bloom called Postville that talked about the conflicts that, that, that began because of this community moving to this small town. And they weren't. They didn't seem to be real interested in, in in becoming part of the the fabric of the town, like a lot of immigrant groups do. They they want to become part of your town, you know. They want to ma- maintain their own identity, but also you know, all blend in a bit. That didn't seem to be the case with uh, Shalom Rubashkin and his group. And so this book by Steve Bloom called Postville, we laid out a pretty uh, <laughs> pretty um, I think uh, critical analysis of the lack of willingness to fit in among the uh, the new immigrants to Postville. But um, it gets a lot better because uh, Rubashkin ended up hiring mostly illegal immigrants. Now these, again, to be clear, these are folks, a lot of them from Guatemala, fleeing economic and political uh, hardship, in many cases fleeing probable death I mean, and I, I say that from personal experience, knowing people who came from Guatemala to get away from situations where they probably weren't going to survive. And there's no, there's a great book by written, it, it's an older book written about, uh, I think it was maybe in the 80s, maybe 70s. It was written about the 1954 CIA coordinated coup against the duly elected government of Guatemala. It's called Bitter, Bitter Fruit. It's well worth reading. And out of that coup, came decades of, of uh, injustice and um, of people being, quote, disappeared and coming up dead and mutilated. And I, I remember the exact figure, but it's somewhere in the tens of thousands of Guatemalans who have been uh, disappeared. So, yeah, while these folks were here illegally, it didn't bother me personally that, uh, <laughs> that uh, they found employment, um, you know, 
uh, somewhere where they weren't going to be killed. But unfortunately, Rubashkin didn't treat them real well. They, they, they worked in conditions that were very, very questionable, uh, lacking safety, uh, safety uh, provisions, um, you know, being brought and placed in housing that was substandard, lots of concerns like that. And what happened was uh, there was an ICE cra- uh, Immigration um, and Customs Enforcement crackdown uh, back in 2000, was it eight? I think, yeah, 2008, May of 2008, that led to the arrest of 400 Mexican and Guatemalan workers at that plant. And to kind of rub, rub, you know, rub, rub even more salt into the wounds of uh, the way that was handled. I mean, the raid itself was horrible. It just, it just um, divided families and, and, and scared people. Uh, they, 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 they put all the, uh, the captured workers on buses and drove them about two hours to, I'm not making this up, the um, Waterloo Cattle Congress. So they were herded like cattle off the bus into this facility for where they were held. Now, um, all that is kind of troublesome on a number of levels. It's troubling to see how our government responds to people who are genuinely fleeing um, death and persecution. It's troubling that Rubashkin hired them and then treated them so badly. Um, If there was any justice in this at all, it was that Rubashkin was found guilty um, in 2009 and sentenced to 27 years in prison um, because of using fake paperwork to um, continue borrowing to keep the factory running on a $35 million line of credit that ultimately resulted in $27 million in losses for this packing plant, again called agri-processors. So um, the guy was sent to prison. Uh, you know, uh, now Robert Tig, a former assistant U.S. attorney, is quoted as saying, Rubashkin couldn't win legally, factually, or morally, so he had to win politically. Now, that's what happened, because Rubashkin was sent to prison, but the um, amount of pressure put on the Obama administration uh, and now the Trump administration to, f- to free him uh, was intense. And, of course, you know, Obama left. Uh, he, he was done with his eight years in the White House without granting Rubashkin a pardon or commuting a sentence, um, as made sense. You know, I, I'm a fan of putting people in prison, but this guy did a lot of bad stuff knowingly. And interesting, interesting to me, <coughs> of greater concern to the courts was trans, trans, transgressions with trans that rather than his transgressions with human beings. That bothers me, but again... The guy deserved prison time. And uh, what got him out was all this political pressure. And here's, the, here's Tig, the former assistant U.S. attorney. Roboshkin couldn't win legally, factually or morally, so he had to win politically. Tig goes on to say, it's sad when politics interferes with the justice system, as it did badly in this case. So, um, you know, again, just reading from the story uh, by uh, Grant Rogers and, and Luke uh, no, uh, Nozicka in the uh, Des Moines Register, also ran in USA Today. Again, it is a national story. Um, Rubashkin, quote, orchestrated a massive criminal scheme that impacted a very large community that is defrauded financial institutions for approximately 10 years, harbored an illegal workforce, and laundered millions of dollars in an effort to provide kosher products across the nation. 
you know that that uh, that was uh, I, I believe that's uh, Judge Linda Reed who um, was the one who denied who who was the one who denied um, his request for clemency on appeal and sent him to uh, prison. <clears throat> she also wrote that the court recognized that Rubashkin repeatedly tried to obstruct justice when his criminal scheme came to light, never acknowledged what the law requires, and never wholeheartedly accepted responsibility. Here's a guy with a real, real, real clear, strong history of being a corporate criminal. Uh, and again, the only thing that bothers me here is that he didn't get a lot of flack for treating the workers badly. Yeah, that, that wasn't the focus. But <laughs> the fact that, that he was able to um, pressure President Trump into releasing him is shameful. Again, the other person who had his sentence commuted, uh, the Again, the, the most vocal anti-immigrant elected official in the country, Joe Arpaio, Sheriff Joe in Maricopa County, Arizona, he was the other person that Trump pardoned, released. And, you know, it says volumes on those are the folks that you find uh, affinity with. Yeah. Anyway, uh, it's, it's, it's very, very troubling. And I don't, um, <coughs> at this point, I'm not sure what happens next. Um, I think it's probably a done deal. But, uh Maybe some folks will look at that and say, huh, corporate criminals or, um, you know, we'll, we won't even talk about Arpaio and his situation, but in this case, a real, a real obvious corporate criminal. I mean, this guy defrauded lots of people out. President Trump saw no problem in letting him out. Anyway, fascinating. Well, um, thanks for joining the Fallon Forum today, folks. This is Ed Fallon, your host, as we broadcast from Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM in Des Moines, Iowa. The, uh, the American heartland in Des Moines, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. I'm not the guy who cared about love. I'm not the guy who cared about fortunes and such. Never cared much. Oh, look at me now. I never knew the technique of kissing I never knew the thrill I could get from your touch I never cared much, oh, look at me now I'm a new man, better than Casanova at his best With a new heart and a brand new start I'm so proud I'm busting my vest So I'm the guy who turned out a Underwriting provided by Physicians for Social Responsibility, working for over 50 years to create a healthy, just, and peaceful world for both present and future generations. More information can be found at psr.org. That's psr.org. Underwriting provided by the Sierra Club, the nation's largest grassroots environmental organization with over 2 million members and supporters, protecting millions of acres of wilderness, and promoting policies that protect our environment. Learn more at sierraclub.org. That's sierraclub.org. Underwriting provided by Bold Iowa, protecting landowners against the abuse of eminent domain and working for clean energy solutions. Details can be found on Facebook at Bold Iowa.